0: Before we jump into Nehemiah chapter, uh, chapter 8, I just want to catch you up on what's been going on here in the book of Nehemiah, so we're all here on the same page. Uh, but if you do need a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one. So uh, if you need one, you don't have one right now, just go ahead and slip your hand up. We'd be happy to walk one over to you. And um, definitely want to make sure everyone has a copy of God's Word. All right, you can also call it up on your, your phone or, or your mobile device. Well, when we open up the book of Nehemiah chapter 1, Begins with the Israelites in captivity, captivity in Babylon. Uh, the enemy nation of Babylon had come. And they had destroyed the, the city. They had destroyed the walls around Jerusalem. And they, then they carried all of the people away uh, to Babylon. And this was actually an act of God's judgment uh, against his people. Because they had started to worship uh, false gods. And they started to uh, to worship idols. And, and they basically they forsook their God. But so uh, God... Allows this judgment to come upon his people because he's really, his goal is to draw the hearts of the people back to himself. And uh, then we, we meet the character ne- Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah was actually born in captivity in Babylon. Uh, he had heard a lot of stories about his homeland. He had his ancestors were from there. But this Jewish man, Nehemiah, gr- uh, grows up and he actually becomes the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. So really ascends to the highest levels of the government. And then one day, Nehemiah hears that his homeland, Israel, is not doing well. The wall has been completely destroyed. The gates have been burned by fire. And that does something to his heart. And God really just puts a dream inside of his heart that he wants to go back and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Ezra had already gone back and rebuilt the temple, but now he wanted to go back and rebuild the wall. And so he gets up the courage to ask the king uh, if he can go do this great work for God. And by God's grace... God allows him to go ahead and do that. And King Artaxerxes not only gives him the yes, but he gives him a blank check and he sends him with letters that says, let him pass through, give him wood uh, all of the, from the forest, anything that he needs, let this man go and rebuild the wall. And so by the time we get to chapter 8, the wall has finally been completed, amen? The work is done. And, um, and, and so last week, <laughs> last week Pastor Hayden preached a sermon uh, called A New Priority. And so today, I want us to to look at at, um, Nehemiah chapter 8, and I want to preach a sermon to you called A New Response. Amen? A New Response. Right? It's one thing to to hear the Word, and that's a good thing, but it's another thing to hear the Word of God and respond to it. If you just hear the Word of God, it really doesn't do you any good. Right? It's like like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he, he looked like. And so I want us to Give a new response to God's word today. And that's certainly what we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8. But before we do that, um, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I just pray right now that you would help us. God, I pray that you would open our eyes. God, I pray that you would open up our hearts. God, I pray that we would open up our hearts to you. God, that we would just respond right now in a posture of receiving what you have for us. And God, I pray that your word would bless your people. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, Ezra has just read the law of God to the people on this amazing day for four hours straight. And um, they're at this place called the Watergate. And the Watergate is right in the center of the city. You could call it the town square. And there's about 40,000 people standing there on their feet listening to Ezra and the priests read the word. So let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse... 9, it says this, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord your God, our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. Amen. So we see God's people responding to God's word here. They're rejoicing because they heard the word of God and they understood it. it. Really is an amazing picture of what's going on inside the hearts of God's people. With the completion of the wall, the Israelites were finally able not only to live in their hometown after 70 years of captivity, but they were able to dwell there safely behind the walls that were really designed to keep out the attacks of an enemy nation, but there's still more to the story. You see, God is far more concerned about the people's hearts than he is about the walls that were built. I think what we're we're seeing here is the work of God's spirit really drawing the people to himself. The people have just built this massive wall around Jerusalem. It's a lot of work, but in this time, God has really been working too. Right, the people have been working, but God has been working, and God has been really working to tear down the walls that the people had built up around their hearts. The people had been in a, a spiritual desert, in a spiritual wasteland, in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. There was a famine for God's word, but now they're, they're gathered together at a place called the Watergate, and the priests are reading the word of God to them, and they're understanding it, and, and it's really an amazing and beautiful thing. God's spirit is moving. And what we see here is God's people responding now with a new devotion to him. And so that's what I want us just to notice here first. And I want to make this our first point this morning. Uh, Point number one is respond to God's word with devotion. Respond to God's word with devotion. And just to make sure we're all here on on the same page, I want to see if I can just put a, a definition on this word devote. What does it mean to devote something? To devote means to give all of something, especially your time, effort, or love, or yourself, to something you believe in or to a person. That's a really great definition, and that's, that's what the people are doing here in the book of Nehemiah. They're giving all of themselves to God, a person. They're, they're giving themselves now over again to, to God. Take a look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. We can see that the word of God being applied by the Spirit of God is causing God's people to respond now to him in a new way. Now, if, if you think about, why, why, why are they weeping? Well, just think about how good God has been to Israel, right? God chose this random man, Abraham, not because of, there was anything great in Abraham, but simply because God chose him, right? And God made promises to this man, Abraham. He said, he said, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will make your descendants more than the stars in the sky, right? He he, he, he blessed this man. He said, those who bless you, I'll bless. And he says, those who curse you, I'll curse. And then through his seed came Jacob and, 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 um, and the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and, and when they went into to slavery in Egypt, God brought them out with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, right? That's the way the Bible says it. And he caused his people to walk through the Red Sea on dry ground. And when the Egyptian army pursued them, God caused the water to close down on their enemies killing all of them. And then in this place, the the wilderness, in the desert where they were, God caused water to to pour out of the rocks when they were thirsty. God caused bread to drop down from heaven when they were hungry. And most importantly, God gave the people his law. Now we think the the law doesn't necessarily sound in our mind like it's a good thing, but the law of God was given to his people so that they would know how to live in relationship with this amazing God who loved them so much. And then he gave them their own land. He gave them this, this place. He said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. This, this homeland for his people. They, they, were, they, they were a people who didn't have a home. They were slaves wandering in the desert, but God gave them a land. And ultimately God said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do something even more amazing than that. I'm gonna send a Messiah one day. And the Messiah is going to completely solve one day, permanently solve one day the sin problem that you have that you can't get away from. And so the promises and the grace to this people were so great. But it's amazing because as you continue to read the Bible in the Old Testament, the left side of your Bible, what you see is the people responding not the way that we would expect someone to respond, but they respond by following after other gods. They worshipped other gods. They worshipped idols. They, they forsook God. They didn't want anything to do with Him. And God had to continually correct and bring Him back to Himself. There was one point when God said to his people in 1 Kings 14, verse nine, he says, you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods in metal images, provoking me to anger. And yet you have cast me behind your back. It's like you just threw me behind you. You didn't want anything to do with me. But church, can I just tell you this morning that God has always wanted for his people to live in relationship with him. Right? God loves His people. He wants His people to love Him back and to serve Him. But their forefathers would not seek Him. And as a result, the Babylonians carried them away into captivity. But it was not without a promise that God would again redeem His people. Amen? Now, I want to read to you this passage from the book of Jeremiah. This is really an incredible, amazing fact that that this book is written and that it says what it says because... The book of Jeremiah was written 150 years before Israel um, came back um, out of Babylon and back into into Israel. 150 years. Israel was in captivity for 70 years. And so God writes this in, in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. He says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Isn't this incredible? God, God is saying, not only are you going to be carried away to Babylon before it ever happened, but he says, when it does, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And then in verse 11, one of our favorite verses in the entire Bible, right? He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. You see, this, this, is, this is what the Israelites have been doing. They've been, they've been seeking God and they're finding him now at the water gate. They've been seeking them with their whole heart. They're pouring out their heart now in devotion to the Lord. They're saying, I know that our ancestors forsook you and worshipped other gods, but God, you are our God. Redeem your people. God, you have redeemed your people. The Lord heard their cry in Babylon. He brought them out of exile back into Jerusalem. And now after 70 years of famine, the people desire to hear God's word. They're seeking the Lord. They're finding the Lord. And they're responding in devotion from their heart to the Lord. Now, I know we've spent about eight chapters, right, talking about this wall. It's all about the wall. We've got to build the wall. The wall is broken down. The gates are burned by fire. But can I just tell you, church, that God wasn't ever really all that concerned about the wall. Amen? Yeah. Right? The wall was really meant to serve the purpose of God bringing his people back in a, in a safety where they would seek him and where they would devote themselves to him. Right? I, I think about Walk Church, and, you know, Walk Church has been blessed, and we, we've been able to purchase a piece of land. I know we meet inside the middle school right now, but we have plans. Right? We, we purchased a piece of land in 2020, 2021, and by God's grace, we were able to pay the land off. Yeah right? Right? Praise God. And, and church, we have plans. God put a dream in Pastor Hyden's heart to build a church in the community, the neighborhood where he grew up in. He wants to reach this place. And can I just tell you this? When we get this building built, we're going to throw a party. Yeah. Amen? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to party. We're going to celebrate. It's going to be one great day. But can I just tell you this? The building is just the means to an end, Right? It's like, man, great, we got this building, but now we're going to use it. We're going to use this thing to reach this community, right? We're going to use this building as a launching pad for church planting and to reach the nations and to make disciples, right? We're going to use that building for the glory of God. Come on, I'll, I'll clap with you on that one. The building is really a means to an end, amen? And I don't know if the people realized it at first, but the wall was really a means to an end. Now listen, I think it's easy to sit here this morning and to just wonder how in the world the Israelites could have possibly dealt that way with God in the past, right? But in reality, we're not that much different, are we? Sometimes we turn our back on God, right? We doubt God's goodness sometimes, don't we? Right, we, we doubt that God really cares about our kids and our family. We doubt that God really cares about us when we suffer, We doubt that God cares when our desires go unfilled. And sometimes we even doubt God's word, right? When when we're challenged by something in the Bible that doesn't fit with my framework or whatever it is that I have, God's word says something about sex that I don't like or marriage or relationships or money, right? We doubt God's word sometimes, don't we? Doesn't that happen sometimes? I think the only way that we're gonna live with lives devoted to Christ is we've gotta wake up every day and we've gotta ask these questions. Will we be rebels or will we be followers of Christ? Right? Will we be like the Israelites or will we be different? And the only way that I know to answer those two questions rightly is by seeking God through his word and then responding to God in devotion right? By committing myself to him, by committing myself to follow him and to love him and to serve him because he's good, because he's blessed us the way he has. I like this quote by D.L. Moody, evangelist and pastor of the past. He says, he says, we ought to see the face of God every morning before we see the face of man, right? Listen, devotion is a practice that you have, you have to wake up and make it a habit. And when we seek God with our whole hearts through his word, I want you to know, church, there's blessing there. And sometimes when we read our Bibles, we see that we're not actually living up to the standards that are in there. Amen? And when that happens, like the Israelites in Nehemiah, we, we need to respond by making a change. Right? And here's what the Bible calls that. The Bible calls that repentance. Right? We need to respond like the Israelites did here in repentance. And I want to make that point number two. Point number one is respond to God's word with devotion. Point number two, respond to God's word with repentance, with repentance. And, and just to, again, to make sure we're all on the same page here, what do you mean by that, Pastor Mike? Here's, here's the definition um, of repentance. It's this. The biblical concept of repentance is more than saying sorry. To repent means to rearrange your entire way of thinking, feeling, and being in order to forsake that which is wrong, right? I think that's a good definition of repentance. That, that's what we see here in Nehemiah. The people are sensing their guilt before God, and they're turning towards him with renewed commitment to follow him. And that's one of the reasons that Ezra and the priests had to tell the people not to be grieved, because they, they felt this sorrow over their sin. And you see, God's law shows us where we falling short, doesn't it? It brings conviction, right? Have you ever sensed that conviction before of the Holy Spirit when you read God's Word? But I I just want to encourage you this morning that conviction over sin is not a bad thing, right? Conviction over sin is a good thing because it's showing you that God cares enough to show you that He wants you to live in right relationship with Him, right? I'll tell you, the time that you should worry is if you ever don't feel that conviction, right? Conviction is a sign of God's love. I, w- I want to read from uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is a, also a familiar scripture, but he's, uh, Paul says to, to Timothy, he says, all scripture, someone say all scripture, all scripture. is inspired by God. And what's, what's this word right here? Profitable. Profitable, right? That's, that, that's a good word, right? It's profitable. That means that it's for me. It's going to make a difference. It's something that I want in my life. It's inspired by God, and it's profitable for teaching. Right? Sometimes we need to be taught how to live in right relationship with God. Right? For reproof. Sometimes we need to get rebuked. Amen? <laughs> for correction. Sometimes we need to be corrected. Hey, you're going this way, but you need to go this way. And it's profitable for training and righteousness. Why? That the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work, right? Have you, you ever sat in a, in a church service before? Well, maybe Pastor Hyden was, was preaching and you just felt like you were cut to the heart, yeah. right? You just sensed, I've got this such, such a sense of, of, of conviction right now of the Holy Spirit, right? Maybe, maybe you've even cried before while sitting in a sermon because you're all of a sudden you have such this awareness of God's standards and the fact that you have not met those standards. Amen. Right? And that's just the nature of the scriptures. That's what happens when you study the Word of God. But let me ask you this when you're convicted by the Word, do you find that a cause for joy? Real question Do you find that a cause for joy? I sent some conviction. Are you joyful in that moment? And do you understand that when God gives you that sorrow, He's working in you repentance? And church, I just want to encourage you again that, that that's a good thing. That's a good thing. When that happens, there's two ways that we can respond, right? God shows us, hey, there's something in me that needs to change. There's something in me that fell short of, of, of God's standards, and, and now we need to make a change. And there, the two responses come from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, for godly grief, that's a good thing. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Come on, church, that, that's what I need in my life, right? I, I need... I need Godly sorrow that produces in me repentance that leads to salvation with no regrets. That's a great thing. So I just want to encourage you this morning that if you get that sense of conviction in your life, then celebrate that. That's a good thing. But it should lead to repentance, right? It says, whereas worldly grief, that's a different response that we could have. What does that produce? Death. What's the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, right? I I think worldly sorrow says, I'm sorry that I got caught, right? It It says, I'm sorry that someone found out about it. It says, I'm sorry that my plans didn't work out the way that I wanted them to. But worldly sorrow leads to death, right? It leads to death because it's not viewed as sin. It's Not viewed that I'm personally responsible for what I did. It's not viewed as something that I can even really change anyway. It's not viewed as a violation of God's law or standards. And most importantly, worldly sorrow says that there's no need to ask God for forgiveness and grace. But godly sorrow leads to life. It leads a person back to God. It leads a person to seek God's forgiveness and His grace. Why? Because I see that what I did was sin. I see that I'm personally responsible for what I did. I, I see that what I did was a violation of God's law and standards. And, and I see that this is something that, that, that's inside of me that needs to drive me to seek God's face and seek His forgiveness and seek His grace. And when we do that, we get... We have this repentance that leads to forgiveness of sin, right? And no regrets. Pastor Hayden preached a sermon one time. I want to encourage you guys to, to search it if you're interested in this topic of repentance. He preached a sermon called Lifestyle Repentance. I don't know if any of you guys were here for that. If you remember it, we had some wristbands made for it at one point. But uh, it really was a great sermon just talking about how repentance is not just a, a one-time thing, but it's really a lifestyle that we live. Right, Every day we're examining our life by the standard of God's Word, and we're making changes, we're tweaking, we're, we're doing all kinds of different things that we need to do to come into God's standards. But in that sermon, Pastor Haydn touched on this passage right here in Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching to his uh, fellow Jewish kinsmen. And, and, and here's what he says to them in verse 19. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. And then he says something unexpected. He says that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. You see, church, I want, I want you to see this morning that, that turning a, away from our sin and turning to God, turning to Christ, it doesn't bring a grief that's going to crush us. It brings a refreshment from God, from the presence of the Lord. Amen? Amen. I, I want us to see that. If we could just get that, if we could live that. Be quick to repent. Be quick to turn away. I want times of refreshing. I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 40, and God is is prophetically speaking of John the Baptist, right? 700 years before John the Baptist would come, God is saying what he would say through John the the Baptist. And and here's what he says. You you guys remember what John the Baptist's message was, right? Repent, right? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What What did God tell John the Baptist to say? He said these words. He says, comfort, comfort my people, Israel. Right? and When God says something once, it's great. When God says something twice, it's really emphatic. God is really saying, my mes- the message that I want you to speak to my people is comfort. Comfort my people. He says, tell them that I have paid double for all their sins. I have given them double, twice as much as they need for all of their sins. Listen, church, when we sense that conviction, turn quickly to Jesus. Because times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. We'll receive comfort from God. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And I was just thinking about a way, how, how, would, I, how would I illustrate this point? This, this turning, uh, this responding to God with repentance. And I was just reminded of this story about um, when Michigan played Wisconsin uh, in basketball <laughs> In, uh, in early 1989, I was a little kid back then watching the running Rebels, but I, I remember this, this game, and uh, Michigan's Ramil Robinson stepped to the foul line, and uh, it was late in the fourth quarter. He had two shots. His, his team was down, um, but, but he could have made these two shots and won the game, and when he stepped up and he, and he shot his, his free throws, they both missed, and Michigan ended up losing that game because of his two free throws that he missed. And can I just tell you something? Ramil felt terrible about missing those two shots, as you can probably imagine, right? But Ramil didn't just have a worldly sorrow, right? He had, he had a godly sorrow, right? A, a kind of a godly sorrow. If I, if I can illustrate it this way. He said, not only do I feel bad, but every day after practice for the, for the rest of the year, Ramil Robinson stepped up to the free throw line and shot 100 free throws every single day because he wanted to be sure that he would be ready the next time he had the opportunity to win a game. And later that year, Romil was ready when he stepped up to the foul line to shoot two shots with three seconds left in overtime at the national championship game. His team was down by one point. He stepped up to the line, first shot, swish. Pressure's on, three seconds left. Tie game, second shot, makes it. Michigan wins the national championship that year based on his two free throws in the national championship game. Right, Ramil's R- R- repentance was genuine repentance. Right, His sorrow motivated him to work hard to make sure that he would never make that mistake again. Right, Can you imagine the joy that he must have felt in that moment? I mean, he, he must have been on top of the world. And that's what true repentance produces. True repentance produces joy and refreshment and victory. And so, church, let me just encourage you. When you feel conviction over sin, we should respond in the the following ways. Two, two, Two things we should do. Number one, first, respond with joy that the Lord is showing you the right way to live in relationship with Him. Amen? Respond with joy. The Lord is showing you how to live in relationship with Him. Second, Make a change that will help you hit the winning shot. Come on, we want to hit the winning shot, right? I want to to hit the winning shot next time I'm up at the free throw line. And that happens through godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And that's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. We see the people repenting, turning from their sin, turning back to God. And of course, the people need to feel sorrow for their sin. But there will be time for that more in the book of Nehemiah. When we get to chapter 9, we're going to see a lot of repentance, right? But for now, the people for the first time in a long time were hearing the voice of God. Even in their sorrow over sin, they had great cause for joy because God was once again speaking to his people, and this was a wonderful and joyful thing too experience. And so that, that leads me to my third point this morning is, is not only should we respond with devotion, not only should we respond with repentance, but we should also respond to the word of God with joy. Yeah. Right, church? We need to respond to the word of God with joy. Yeah. Just jumping back into Nehemiah here, verse 10, it says, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and sweet, and, uh, and drink sweet wine. By the way, when it says eat the fat, it just means the rich foods. Eat the good stuff, right? And send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to, to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy to the Lord. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them, right? This was a day for repentance, but more than that, this was a day for celebration, right? This was a day to remember the faithfulness of God to bring them back into their land. This was a day to remember the way that God had redeemed them, not only from slavery out of, out of Egypt now, but again from Babylon back into their homeland, land. And this was a day to celebrate that they were out of their spiritual wilderness and that they were finally able to hear and understand God's word once again. And all of these things were great signs of God's love for his people. They're such cause for joy. So Ezra hears the weeping and he he redirects their weeping and their mourning to joy. He wants to strengthen the people. In this passage, uh, Ezra says something that would become one of the most uh, famous scriptures ever written right? It's this, this phrase, the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? We see that verse often, don't we? We, we quote that, that, that verse to our friends when they're going through a hard time when they're suffering, and we say the joy of the Lord is your strength, right? I love it when people say that to me, the joy of the Lord is your strength. We see this on cards in the grocery store, the religious aisle, right? We see, we see it on bumper stickers all the time, but, but, but what does the joy of the Lord actually mean, I want to see if we can just break it down a little bit because it says the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if the joy of the Lord is going to give us strength this morning as a church, I want to know what it is. Amen? You guys with me on that? We tend to think about the joy of the Lord in terms of the joy that the Lord gives. Right? And and that's certainly an aspect to it. But I think that when, when the Bible talks about this phrase, the joy of the Lord, I think the thing that it's primarily speaking about is the Lord's own joy right? The joy that the Lord himself possesses, right? When you think of God, do you think of God, just just imagine in your mind right now, do I think of God as happy? Is that the the first thing that comes to my mind about God, that he's happy, that he's joyful? There's such joy in God, right? I want to take a look at this this verse in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, really an amazing verse. Paul is writing this letter to his young protege, Timothy, this church planting pastor. And he's talking to him about the gospel. And, and, and here's what he says here, here's the topic of the conversation. He calls it the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, I bring this passage up because you see this word right here, blessed? translators try to translate from Greek into English and they try to translate it with a word that's going to give us a sense of divine happiness. This is literally talking about the happiness of God. This word right here, blessed, should really be translated happy. That's what this word means, that God is the happy God. In fact, it says it's the glory of the happy God right? When we talk about the glory of God, we're talking about his attributes, that, that God is, like when we say that God is love, it's, we're saying that God is infinitely loving because God is love. When we say that God is powerful, we're saying God is infinitely powerful because that's who he is. Church, this is the glory of the happy God. God is infinitely happy. Do you see God that way? John Piper says it like this, He says, God's glory consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond our wildest imagination. God is happy beyond our wildest imagination. Isn't that good news this morning, church? The God who redeems his people, the God who sent his son Jesus to come and die for your sins. He's not mad at you. He hates sin, but he loves you. He has so much joy. The God who calls you into relationship with himself is a happy God. And that's good news. And that's, that's why if you just go back to the first Timothy verse here, um, that's why he says it's the gospel. You know what the word gospel means? Good news. good news, right? It's good news because this is the good news of the glory of the happy God with which I have been entrusted. That's the gospel that we preach to you this morning, church. It's the gospel of the happy God. And Jesus talks about this, and and he translates that into joy in in these three scriptures. In Matthew chapter uh, 25, he says this. He he gives this invitation to people who would turn from their sin and trust in him. He says, this is what they'll hear on that day. Enter into the joy of your master. Look, church, we're going to enter into the joy of God. He says this in John 15, the the night before he goes to the cross, he's speaking to his disciples. And what does he have to say? What's on his mind? He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Come on, we don't want like half level joy. We don't want lowered. We want full joy. And that comes by being in right relationship with God. That's why we need to repent and turn to him. He's going to refresh us and give us his joy. And then in John chapter 17, we see this intimate conversation between Jesus and the Father. What's on his mind again? It's this. He it says, I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. We serve the happy God. The joy of the Lord is your strength. God is a God who gives joy because he's a joyful and happy God. Just to bring this back into the context of Nehemiah, Let me jump over to the book of Jeremiah again. Remember, written 150 years before any of this happens. Here's what God says is gonna happen on the day that they come back to Jerusalem, on the day that the wall is built, on the day that they're standing at the water gate, hearing the word of God. Here's, Here's how God describes it. He says, hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, he who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud, right? That sounds like a joyful noise to me. On the heights of Zion, they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden we're not talking about plants that are drying up in the desert we're talking about lush rich plants that are well watered that's what their life is going to be like and they shall languish no more then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry I will turn their mourning into joy I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Mm, So good. And Nehemiah and Ezra are looking around and they're seeing the people weeping and mourning and they say, no, this is the time where Jeremiah is gonna come true. This is the time for rejoicing. God is gonna turn your weeping into joy. He's gonna turn your your sorrow into, into joy. This is, a play, this is a time for joy and abundance and provision from the Lord and satisfaction and goodness. And, and, and God is going to comfort his people now. And, church, can I just tell you this? That, that God has brought us into a new Exodus, right? Church, we've we passed to the other side from, from death to life through the blood of Jesus Christ. We have more reason to be joy than even the Israelites did in Israel. I think that when we come to church, we should be the most joyful people in the world, right? We should come into his presence and come through his gates with singing. Now listen, I I understand that the church is a place for the hurting and the broken, amen? A lot of us here this morning are hurting, and we're broken people. We've been through a lot, maybe this week, but but it's still a place where the hurting and the broken can experience the joy of the Lord. Amen? And that's what we see here. And the joy of the Lord, church, here's what I just want to relate relate it to, is that the joy of the Lord comes when we respond rightly to his word. Amen? A new priority given to the word and a new response. And that's what we see in verse 12. It says that the people rejoiced greatly because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And so last week, Pastor Haydn issued us this challenge. Uh, it was really a blessing. I, want to, I just want to continue the challenge this week. Are you guys up for it? Last week, it was First John and the proverb of the day. Uh, this week, I want us to read First Peter. The, the book of First Peter has five chapters. And so on Monday, we'll read First Peter chapter 1 and Proverbs 23, because it'll be the 23rd of, of May. Then we'll read 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 3, 4 and 5, and so on. And so let's get back next week, and I hope everyone in here will take the challenge. And when we take this challenge, when we read God's word, I don't want to just make it the priority, but I want us to respond, right? I want us to respond in devotion to the Lord, giving our whole hearts to the Lord as we read, trying to know him better. When we see something in God's word that doesn't line up with the way that we're living, let's respond quickly in repentance so we can receive refreshing from the Lord. And let's respond to God's word with joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And as the, the worship team comes up uh, again, I, I just, I just want to ask you, can you imagine just being there by the water gate behind the wall, 40,000 people, the word of God being read, this great work of God had been completed. Now here, here's the amazing thing. There was about 150,000 people in captivity in Babylon. The Bible tells us in Ezra and in the book of Nehemiah that only 42,000 people came. Out of 150,000 people, only 42 people said yes to the invitation to go back to to the homeland, right? Listen, the king said this. He He said, you have my invitation to go. Everything is paid for you have a blank check go and, and you guys can go back home and serve the Lord and the crazy thing is is, is that probably a little bit over a hundred thousand people said this nah nah not gonna go the people who returned experienced the great work of God they experienced the joy of the Lord and those who stayed behind missed being part of that story. But can I just tell you, church, we have an invitation today from an even greater king, don't we? We're not talking about King Artaxerxes from Babylon. We're talking about the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And check this out. This is not an invitation to go. That's what the, the invitation was to the Israelites, was to go. This invitation from the king of kings and the Lord of lords is to come. Right? He says, he says, everything is prepared. Everything is ready. The price has been paid. The blood of my son Jesus covers your sin. There's a great wedding feast and a banquet that's prepared for you, and I'm asking you to come. But church, listen, the ball is in your court. How are you going to respond? Is it going to be, meh, nah, or is it? Or is it going to be? I want to be a part of that great work. I want to experience the joy of the Lord. Church, I, I, I pray. I pray that the answer is yes. That's what God wants to hear from you more than anything else is yes. I'll come. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Church, how will you respond to the invitation to come today? Come on, everyone close your eyes. Let's pray with me. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here for the first time or maybe you've been coming for a while and you've never responded And you've never put your yes on the table with Jesus. I just want to invite you right now. I want to extend the invitation from the King Jesus to you. He's inviting you to come. To experience the joy of the Lord. And to be with him in his presence for all eternity. Where there is fullness of joy. And so if if that's you this morning, I just want to ask you to, to pray with me. say dear God I understand that there's an invitation to come and I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sin and so God right now I want to put my yes on the table I want to come and and experience the joy of the Lord I'm trusting in Jesus and so God I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to to walk with you and serve you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Amen.